Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I have an inspiring and entertaining conversation with Ben Hoffman. Ben is just so open and incredibly authentic in this chat, sharing his tough moments in sport and life and then sharing some of his tremendous highs. There are just so many inspiring stories from the moment he almost gave it all up to Ironman podiums and then potential career-ending injuries to winning South Africa Ironman for the third time and finishing fourth in Kona and running the fastest ever marathon at the Florida Ironman. Ben just provides so many incredible takeaways in this one. I really appreciate him coming on and just sharing so much knowledge. It was just simply brilliant. Now, some housekeeping before we go on. If you're enjoying the show, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts. That would really help. Um, If you want to give me some feedback, you can go to my social channels, uh, The Greg Bennett Show on Instagram, uh, Greg Bennett Show on Twitter, and then you can just find me on Facebook as Greg Bennett. Um, you can go find the show notes, timestamps, coupon codes, and all the links uh, at um, bennettendurance.com forward slash media. That's bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Ben was just absolutely amazing in this chat. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. If you're enjoying the show, you can support by supporting the show's sponsors. All of these products I'm using regularly. You see, these past few months, I've become even more conscious about my metabolic health, my nutrition, supplementation, movement, sleep and recovery, and, and social interaction. And I found the support for my metabolic health with these sponsors, Athletic Greens, Hyper Ice, and Continua G. Athletic Greens is a green drink source from Whole Foods that actually tastes great. It's delivered straight to your door and it's highly absorbable powder, which takes seconds to mix with water, so there's no clumpiness to deal with. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery and probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health, and vitamin C and zinc citrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. It's NSF certified for sport, no harmful chemicals, no GMOs, and no funny additives. Honestly, I can't recommend Athletic Greens enough. Whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system, or address gut health, now's the perfect time to try Athletic Greens for yourself. A number of my guests that I've had on the show take Athletic Greens regularly, including Timothy O'Donnell, Marinda Carfrey, Tim Don, and Sebastian Kinley, amongst others. There's a great offer going on now for you to give it a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free daily travel packets with your first purchase a $79 added value, and get Athletic Greens delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Now, with two kids and a business to run, time is limited. In the past, when I was a professional athlete with no kids, I'd line up the massages throughout the week to help with recovery and those niggling injuries. But now, I only use the various recovery tools from Hyperice. They work, they're easy to use, and they're time efficient. My go-to is the Hypervolt, the world's most powerful percussion massage device featuring quiet glide technology. Their vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology, and Normatech compression systems help you warm up faster, recover quicker, and simply move better. With Christmas fast approaching, yes, it's almost here, Hyperize products make the perfect gift for anybody in your life that you want to help support, get them, and keep them moving. Get $50 off all percussion devices now. No code needed and get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com. H-Y-P-E. 
E-R-I-C-E.com and use code GREG10 for 10% off. Finally, you're not going to believe this, but I have a new sponsor that doesn't sell anything. They just want to educate. It's called theglutathionreporter.com. That's theglutathionreporter.com. You can find them in my show notes. Why are they doing this? Well, it appears that medical doctors, scientists, college professors are sticklers for accurate information. <laughs> and instead of complaining or getting into Twitter battles, these guys just build a website to reach out and teach people everything you want to know about glutathione. The reason I'm interested, and this is important, is that most consumers are wasting time and money on dietary supplements that don't work. And the best way to prevent this is to do your homework, form your own opinion, and make more informed decisions. So go to theglutathionreporter.com. All right, today's guest is one of the greatest Ironman athletes in the world. For 15 years, he's chased the dream of being the very best in the world, and he's on the verge of making that happen with a second and two-fourths at the Kona Ironman World Championships. He has seven Ironman victories, seven 70.3 wins, and when he's not winning, he's always on the podium. And in fact, in 2019 Ironman Florida, he finished second in a time of seven hours, 48 minutes and 29 seconds, and in doing so, the fastest Ironman marathon ever recorded of two hours, 36 minutes and nine seconds. That's an incredible sub-six-minute mile pace, or more specifically, five minutes and 57 seconds per mile or three minutes 42 per kilometer for the entire marathon. Absolutely insane. He has a relentless work ethic and I have no doubt that the Ironman world title is well within his grasp. He's been a good mate of mine and training partner for many, many years. Welcome and thanks for joining me on the Greg Bennett Show. Ben Hoffman, how are you, mate? I'm doing well, Greg. It's great to be here. So I really appreciate the intro there. I was just thinking as you were reading all that stuff off that I need to have this little pep talk maybe the night before Kona um, next year <laughs> is uh, getting me fired up. <laughs> well, you're welcome, mate. I, I mean, you know, I know it's been quiet in 2020, but I mean, that, that tail end of 2019 coming off Kona Ironman where you were fourth in an 8.02, which basically would have won any year except for the last, the previous two years, I think, in history of the sport, then to back it up with that race in Florida, mate, it was just, I mean, it was about this time last year, actually. Actually, we're recording today on November 2nd, um, and I think that's the day you actually were in Ironman Florida. It was right about now, actually. You were doing yeah, it was, it was early <laughs> November. It's kind of crazy to think back that a, an entire year has, has passed and, and a crazy one, like you mentioned. But yeah, you know, it's, it really was one a special year last year for so many reasons. Um, you know, not just because of the racing side of things, but also because you know because I became a father for the first time. Uh, you know, we have we had mm. Josie May born in September, right before Hawaii. But yeah, it was just a special year all around. And and really, you know, the one race you didn't mention out of the three Ironmans I did last year, which was South Africa, was also one of the best races I've ever had. I feel like we had a shortened swim, which was unfortunate, but I feel like had we not, it would have been close to a sub eight performance on that course, which would have been you know, another one of my top of all time. And, uh, yeah, so it was just a great year all around. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy how much, uh, can change in one year's time. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, you look at, you look at that year and you're, you're also not, you're not mentioning the fact that in 2018, you know, you, you had to deal with injuries and, and all of that. And, and I did see, uh, an interview after Kona last year and, and you just said, look, I'm just incredibly grateful 
to be back and you know and don't take it for granted now when you have a year of injury and that kind of thing it was just that that gratitude that you had really affected your attitude all the way through the year that's absolutely correct i mean i feel like it's easy after 15 years in professional sport you know that you're i don't know you, the, the dynamic changes right and you're maybe the novelty wears off some you get into a mm-hmm. uh, different kind of grind about things maybe and you focus on maybe some of the things that didn't really get you into the sport initially, you know, the, just the, the original passion and, and the love of the day-to-day training. And maybe you focus a little more on the business side, whatever it is, it distracts you. And, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, when you get away from racing like that and when it's taken away, you know, I mean, I, I still accept responsibility for what happened. I mean, my injury is something that I, I did to myself. I didn't see it coming. Um, but you know, I was obviously doing the training. I was maybe, a little malnourished. And so I think I'm responsible um, when it really comes down to it, but I didn't see it coming and, and it felt like things were taken away from me. And so, yeah, in that moment of, you know, realizing that I couldn't race anymore, even if I, and I still wanted to, that's when it kind of really, you know, drove it home for me, just how much I love the sport, the community of people around it and, and how much I'm still burning to get out there on the race course and, and give my very best because I can see, you know, for me as a 37 year old, you know, historically, and also just, uh, you know, from, I guess my own personal sense about things that, you know, I probably only have a few more years of really giving it, um, my very, very best on the world stage. So I want to make the most of them. And that's also part of why this year I think is really challenging because, you know, the silver lining is we have more time with our baby daughter, but for sure, I would think that, you know, after my huge year last year, that if I would have done, you know, maybe some of the similar things in training and whatever else that I could have had another great year. But, you know, it's, uh, I guess, at least in this case, unlike 2018, nobody's really racing. So, uh, you know, that's, I guess, the good part of it in a way, but it's hard to have one of what you think would probably be one of your better years taken away. Um, of course. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're seeing that across the board. There's been, there's been a few guests, you know, when I, Javier Gomez and Alistair Brownlee both sort of stepping back to go to short course to the Olympics. And then they're kind of like, maybe I should have stayed in Ironman. <laughs> I don't, you know, like, ah. Oh! Uh, but I think for Alistair, he was kind of saying maybe the extra year of just focusing on short course training might suit him more for the Olympics next year. So it's been a, it is an interesting year. And, and you mentioned you did that injury to yourself. Just tell us a bit, a bit about that. And, and did you feel, that that injury could have been career ending? Well, I think, so just for, you know, to give people a little bit of background, basically what I had was a sacral stress fracture. It was a, a, a fracture of my sacrum. And, um, and this came on uh, through repetitive stress in that area, basically, and a depletion of sort of, a, you know, the minerals, the basics that you need in your body to keep really good bone health. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it, you know, it was one of those things where I literally was in the form of my life and it was September and I had done a 70.3 out in California and Santa Cruz had done pretty well there. I was a little tired going into it. I, I felt like I gave a great performance, but it wasn't enough to win. I finished second, came home, got right back into hard training. And I think it was that Friday following that Sunday race, I kind of pulled up with a, just a strange feeling in my, you know, my glute area. And, uh, you know, and then by that Saturday, I did another long ride, run off the bike, and it was very clear that I was injured. Um, Mm. And then I launched down the path of figuring out what it was, which actually took quite a while because, you know, that's not the default thing to think that you have a fracture in that area. It's actually a fairly uncommon injury in the general population. But as I've come to discover with professional triathletes, it's surprisingly common. And, Mm. uh, And I think that's just because of the, again, the, you know, it's very 
um, it's kind of a, any sort of stress fracture is usually going to be something where it's a, a long-term, like I said, depletion, uh, you know, on sort of a nutritional side where you're not getting everything you need to keep that bone health up. And what I came to understand was that in that area, you know, you use, you use a lot of calcium actually when you're, um, out for long rides and runs and long periods, long, long cycles of training, endurance training, your muscles actually need a lot of calcium to function just like they need sodium, potassium, magnesium. They also need calcium. And it turns out that when you don't get enough in your diet, you start to rob from a local source, which in this case ends up being the bone. So it's actually like the tendon is pulling hmm. calcium out of the bone. Wow. And uh, through blood testing and, you know, DEXA scans and everything that we went through afterwards, I sort of discovered that I am, you know, a bit low in vitamin D, which is also not tremendously uncommon in endurance athletes. Um, so that calcium, vitamin D, and then also vitamin B12 is what we kind of discovered through that process. So we're, we're all kind of low on my um, blood test. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a crazy experience. Um, and again, you know, I, I take responsibility because even though I have gotten – I would say somewhat routine blood tests throughout my career, definitely a couple a year. Um, I never really, I guess, dove that deeply into them and watched the trends that much. Um, I was always kind of like, oh, these are within ranges that are probably okay. And had I looked a little bit closer, you know, I probably would have seen that uh, things weren't 100% right. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I take responsibility for that. And, you know, I think sometimes even though professional athletes are so good at knowing their own bodies, um, you know, sometimes you are also really good at ignoring, uh, the pain and, you know, at our level, if you're feeling pain, um, it's probably something that you need to pay a little bit of attention to. It's, it's really difficult though, isn't it? It's like you, you feel pain and if you stopped every time you kind of felt a niggle or pain, I personally, I never would have got out the door <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like in trouble. So it is that fine line of going, okay, have I gone too far or is it just the body needing to warm up? You know, it's like trying to understand it. What I love about that or what you just said is just the, the learning process, you know, as, as professional athletes, you're constantly learning, you know, you're constantly learning more about yourself. You're constantly learning what you can do better in terms of blood tests and understanding those results. And, and, and the problem with blood testing, and I've said it on this show before is, it is quite a snapshot in a moment, you know, in time. And so it's very difficult to say, look, you know, my blood test that I did back in March, you know, showed this, this and this, but you got to remember I was coming out of winter and I was in a different kind of training block compared to what I did in September when I was in a high intensity block, high, you know, coming out of the summer. Your results, even though you could feel much the same, are going to show many, many different things. And that's the problem with with blood tests. They're very much a, a snapshot and it's hard to take too much away from that. I think it's important to do and it's a useful tool, but it, it is kind of hard. So I don't know that you can even beat yourself up too much about not not reading your blood tests as, as, as much as you would have liked. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's definitely one of those things too, where, I mean, this is a, this goes to the concept of, of having a really good team around you too, right? Of people mm -hmm. that are your coach or, you know, physio, whoever it is. And and having maybe somebody in that role too, this kind of like the little knock on the door saying like, Hey, we need to do this little test now. And like letting them, you know, digest that because at the end of the day, as an athlete, you know, your main thing is really getting out the door for the training and recovering and then getting ready for the next day. And then also taking care of your, you know, mind and mindset. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's complicated, man. I mean, it's one of those things that, yeah, you live and you learn and you evolve as an athlete and you try to get better and pay attention. But, you know, sometimes you find out that you're, you know, one step behind as opposed to one step ahead. And, uh, and that's just part of the learning process. 
Yeah, well, I want to touch on all of that in this in this episode. You know, building your team and your relationships and your mindset training and all of that kind of stuff. Um, what what what's twenty twenty been like for you? I mean, have you managed to get out to a race yet? Well, not officially. So I've done two sort of rogue running races, and one of them was a trail run when I was up in Durango, Colorado, um, this summer. We did a little bit of time up there. It's where I, you know I, I actually kind of started my professional career in Durango. Lived there for four years before I moved up to Boulder. And got to do some uh, training with you and, and all the other Boulder athletes back in the day. But um, yeah, so we went back there just to kind of check it out and, you know, see what was going on. And, and also just to put ourselves in a, a little bit different environment, a tough year and uh, and try to enjoy, you know, some of this downtime. But did a trail run up there that was kind of, uh, once again, sort of an unofficial thing. And then I did a, a 10K running race the other day here in town that a friend organized with about 15 of us. So it was pretty low key. Um, but in terms of a true real race, no, I haven't done anything like that. And, um, you know, I'm hopeful that the challenge Daytona goes off here, um, in early December, yeah. but of course the, you know, things are turning for the worse at the moment with the virus. And I think that, uh, they do have, you know, the, the protocols in place to make this as safe as possible. And hopefully it does go off. But, uh, to this moment in time, no, I haven't done a, an official race in 2020. And I guess to, you know, answer your question more completely, the year has been kind of a roller coaster, even though I did my best to insulate myself from, from that, you know, that I, I saw that happening early on where people would say, Oh, well, not this race, but the next one. And then they would train really hard and they would get disappointed, you know, when it didn't happen. And then they would just say, Oh, well the next one. And they did that four or five or six times. And I, when my first big race got canceled, um, I basically just said, you know what, I'm going to just pump the brakes here, go into more of kind of a maintenance phase and just continue training, but not really hard and not with a in tremendous amount of focus towards an event. And I'm not going to burn any extra matches because I don't see um, the benefit in, in going down that path. But the, fu- but the funny thing is that I think even when you do that and even when you kind of set up that buffer, you know, emotionally, you still go through these highs and lows where you know, it's, it's impossible, I guess, to completely insulate your, yourself from them. And I think everybody's going through them, whether you're financially okay or not, mm-hmm. um, whether you've been sick or not, you know, it's just, this is the reality of the world. It's a change that's happening. Humans are generally very uncomfortable with certain uncertainty and also with change. And so I think, you know, no matter what we do, uh, we're all kind of having those, those highs and lows. And so, yeah, it's been a bit of that to be perfectly transparent. Um, you know, I think, there's moments when I'm tremendously optimistic and enjoy this time to sort of reset, spend time with my family and uh, maybe not put all my energy towards the triathlon side of things. And then there's moments where I'm very much, uh, you know, a bit lost about things and kind of depressed if, if you would say, you know, that if you use that word and, um, and struggling too. So yeah, it's been a mixture of everything. And, um, the key for me is to kind of come back to the basics that I know that work for me. You know, I make sure that I'm exercising every day, um, trying to, like you said earlier, uh, you know, focus on being grateful, showing gratitude, um, and looking for the positive everywhere I can. And it's not always easy, but, uh, you know, when I, when I put more energy towards those things, my life generally goes better. It's amazing, isn't it? I, I've had quite a number of guests who have discussed this, you know, the, the effects emotionally and mentally of the year and, and how you've approached it. And, and I think, I think the big takeaways is, you know, it's, it's control what you can control and, and stay present as much as you can. Um, the big thing that we've kind of, you know, talked about on this show a lot is, you know, reducing negativity 
maybe less than trying to chase positivity. <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> Fair I, enough, yeah. for me, for me, that's. Uh, turn off the media, turn off the news these days. I feel like it's just become, you know, that's just a negative noise. And so we kind of have reduced that a whole bunch. But, and then, you know, being grateful for everything that you can. It's amazing how if you spend the time, and I've said it on this show a couple of times, you know, when I'm just washing my hands or whatever, I spend 30 seconds and go through a list of things that I'm grateful for. And boy, it changes your mood immediately. Because like you, I, I think all of us have gone through these periods of, you know, I think being depressed is maybe a bit stronger word these days, but definitely get a bit down. And it's kind of, okay, how do I get myself out of this and get going again? And um, I've really found the art of being grateful has been a tremendous help in, in affecting my mood and, and moving forward. I, how's your preparation going for Daytona, Challenge Daytona, being that it'll go ahead? For people that don't know, it's it's a race in Florida, in Daytona, obviously, uh, where it's one point one five million dollars price purse um where they're traveling in flying in athletes from all around the world triathletes um men and women i think how many are on the start line it's quite a few it should Um, be at least 50 men and 50 women um i think there's those numbers are sort of in flux i've noticed that they're adding a few more athletes um kind of last minute here and yeah i couldn't give you an exact number i think it also depends of course on yeah, travel restrictions and, and things like that, because a lot of these are European based athletes. I know they've worked hard with NASCAR because the events held at the um, Daytona Speedway to actually use their resources to get uh, permission um, to kind of bypass that for some of the foreign athletes. So they should be able to get in, even though there are uh, restrictions right now on travel. But you know, it's also, yeah, it's just hard to say right now, I feel like things are and so they feel like they're in flux to me. And um and so therefore, I, with regard to my own training about it, I think it's also been one of those things where uh, you don't realize this, you know, so much or you take it for granted, like a lot of things in life. But, you know, normally we would say, OK, let's say Kona is October 10th or October 12th. It's always then we know it's coming. We have our schedule laid out for qualification for whatever races that lead up to it. And, you know, it's it's just something that we expect to happen. And with this season and even with this race, uh, I, I feel mostly confident that it will go off. But, you know, I think that also plays into some of the day to day with me where I'm like, I'm not hedging exactly, um, but just kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah. just sort of like, well, eh, you know, it's just different, I guess. And it's hard to find um, that next gear, probably. Yeah, it just it's a little bit different to envision. It's also a first, I mean, it's not a first time event, but it's the first time that it's had this kind of prize money, this kind of um, mm. energy around it, this kind of field. And so. Yeah, it's just different than like, for example, for me, imagining Kona, where it's very easy to see myself getting in the water in Kailua racing, you know, who I know is going to be there in top form. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I am, I would say on track for what would be probably a solid performance for me. I'm also realistic about this race. I mean, if you were to mm. say, hey, Ben, what is your sort of ideal race dynamic and, you know, scenario for a world championship event? Uh, number one, I would not choose a distance that was probably less than Ironman, um, which this is. And, uh, you know, and that's just my strength. I mean, that's something that I recognize over after many years of racing. Um, and you know, this is, I I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses. I have the utmost respect for the athletes that have been invited. A lot of them are short course specialists, ITU guys. Some of them have done half Ironmans shown that they're very competitive at that distance as well. Um, so I think, yeah, if, if I were to choose a race for myself, this wouldn't be my top choice. But it's also an opportunity for me to work on some weaknesses, some VO2 work um, on the on the run and also on the bike, and just try to, try to 
you know, see if I can work on that speed a little bit, which I think ultimately won't do any real harm for my Ironman performances. So, um, yeah, I'm just trying to, again, stay positive about this, look at the opportunities here, recognize that the professional triathletes organization who's involved in putting this race on has done a lot for professionals in our sport. And I'm grateful for that and want to show my support, you know, of their efforts. So, um, yeah, I guess long story short, uh, I'm going to go there and give my best and I'm expecting that I'll probably get my butt kicked by some of these guys. <laughs> oh, uh, of course. Mate, I, <laughs> yeah. that, that's not unfair to say. I mean, you know, for one, a lot of these guys have also had quite a few races already this year. You know, they've raced in Europe a fair bit. True, and, yeah. and we all know that race fitness, you know, is just critical. Um, someone like Vincent Lewis, who I've had on the show a couple of times now, um, you know, is obviously in tremendous shape. Alistair Brownlee's coming into form. Um, Christian Blumenfeld, like you said, all these ITU uh, World Triathlon you know, guys that were probably favored for the Olympic gold, silver, bronze medals, Johnny Brownlee. Um, you, you've really got a plethora of guys at just tremendous speed. And the distance, I believe, is 2K swim, 80-kilometer bike, and 18-kilometer uh, run. Yep. So, and it's flat, um, you know, laps around the Daytona Speedway. So, you, you, you really, you are catering to the shorter course athletes, without a doubt. Um, so, yes, I think in fairness to you you can be optimistic and yet you're being very realistic and i think that's a fair approach um you know and and, and i think that's that's i think most guys in your position you know that's the way you're going to have to approach it but it's nice that like you said i think the the professional triathlon organization the pto are, are doing a tremendous job um and it's great to just go and support it um and it will be a fun race to watch both the men's and women's and i think that's uh, december 6th so that'll be that'll be exciting what what i want to do now is wind the clock back um and tell us, when did this all start for you, mate? When did you find this passion for endurance sport? Well, I guess we'd have to go back to, well, I mean, for sure, when I was really young, um, you know, probably six, seven, eight years old, playing soccer was my primary sport at that time. Um, you know, I I noticed that, like, I was a midfielder and I was a left midfielder because I'm left-footed and I would... I would run all day up and down the field, you know, and if we, I went to soccer camps, you know, over the summer to try to improve my skills. And, and I was always kind of on the more competitive teams, you know, the advanced teams and, um, uh, track, you know, the traveling teams to go, whatever. I, I grew up in Western Colorado in Grand Junction. So we would travel to Denver to do tournaments and, you know, I was always on the really competitive teams and yeah, we would do these step tests, you know, where it's like those, they be basically have the cones laid out and you run back and forth and then they whistle and gets faster and faster and faster. And what I found was I could just outlast everybody on those, you know, they would burn their matches early. And <laughs> so I kind of just knew innately that I had this endurance element and then fast forward a little bit further into high school. Um, when I was a sophomore, I believe it was my parents decided to get into road cycling. They'd actually done one or two triathlons. I don't even remember this from my childhood at all, but they had done like a sprint distance triathlon somewhere in Colorado and, you know, they had just done it for fun. Um, but we got into some bike touring, some week long tours and my dad bought me a road bike and same kind of thing. I would go out there and do these tours with them and I would take off in the morning. Cause obviously I was younger and, um, you know, a little bit stronger and faster than they were. And I would ride ahead and ride with the groups and get into the Pelotons. And, you know, I got that experience, I guess, of riding, um, on the road in a group you know, when I was in high school and realized that I had pretty good endurance, I would get up to the, you know, the next stop, whether it was 60 miles or a hundred miles up the road, 
and I'd set up camp for my parents and myself, you know, and we, so I'd get there ahead of them, do all that. And that was kind of my first introduction to, to road cycling. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, I guess. And then also in high school, I ran two years, uh, on the track team. I ran the 800 meter. And I mean, thinking back to high school now and the way that I live my life as a professional athlete, you know, you're young, you're in high school, you're distracted by girls going to parties, whatever it was. And I didn't put the real energy and focus into it that maybe some high school athletes do, but I was an okay runner. Um, and I did, I think for the 800 to 159, you know, so it was, it was respectable for that age and not having a tremendous amount of focus probably, but yeah, that was kind of, so I had some running background in that sense. And then, um, in college, I went to the university of Montana, Missoula. And by the time I went to college there, I was mostly focused on rock climbing and I was kind of a outdoorsy bum guy, you know, that didn't really care much about endurance sport at that point. But I took my road bike up to college with me and I think it was the end or sorry, the beginning of my sophomore year there in college, 2003, I went to a meeting of the club team, the triathlon club team. And earlier that summer, I had been reading a book when I was this is all kind of crazy story. Sorry if you get, it's hard to follow, but I no, had no. driven my truck up to Alaska that summer uh, prior. So the summer of 2003, I had driven my truck to Alaska, lived out of it up in Haines, Alaska. And uh, on the way up there, before I took the ferry from Prince Rupert, British Columbia, I'd, I went into the library. I still remember this. And I, for whatever reason, was just hanging out in the library, reading books. And I came across a book about... Ironman triathlon and specifically Ironman Hawaii. And I don't remember what the book was called or exactly the details, but it was like my first real, like, oh, this is a thing. And, you know, it sounded kind of crazy combining all these sports and really long and grueling and, but it intrigued me. And so uh, I got back to school that fall, saw that they had a club team meeting, went to it. And at the time um, we had a really strong club team in, in Missoula. There was just some professionals around Todd Struckman, Matt Seeley, you know, a few of these guys that were part of Team Stampede. And, you know, we had a really good university club team as well. So I joined that really and you know, I just really clicked right away. I mean, I had to learn how to swim, which was, you know, ter a terrible experience ultimately at the start. Um, you know, I, I had no swim background. So literally 25 yards across the pool gasping for air. I mean, that was my, you know, introduction in 2003. And uh, anyway, I got started training with them, loved it. And, you know, realized I did my first race 2004 it was a sprint distance and Matt Seeley was a professional at the time. He was more of an Ironman guy, but we went head to head in that race and I finished 19 seconds behind him in second place. And I was like, okay, like that's not too bad for my first race. And, uh, you know, the, I guess from that point forward, decided to pursue it a little bit more. And, uh, even though I was still a student and, and actually a pretty good student, I was more focused on triathlon for sure. By the time I graduated, decided to turn professional and, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I moved back to Colorado, you know, started training in Durango. And then I guess it was 2010 slash 11 when I realized that I'd kind of outgrown the resources in Durango and needed to up my game. And so I moved to Boulder and I uh, got connected with the crew there. And that just kind of opened my eyes to a whole new world of, you know, a whole new level of training, I guess, and uh, mm -hmm. professionalism in the sport. So that was yeah, 2011 and then settled in and, you know, kind of found my two bases between Boulder and Tucson and started chipping away at the Ironman thing. That's awesome. But I, I love that story. I love the fact that you're, you're a very good athlete, by the way, anybody that can run a, a sub two minute, 800 meters uh, in high school, that's clipping along, by the way, 
I think, <laughs> you know, and, and I think the only the only struggle is, um, you know, like you said, was was not having the swim. Um, and so, when, how how difficult was that? I mean, you said it was really tough. Did you have a great swim coach at university there? What was that like? Because a, a lot of listeners find the the swim pretty difficult to get a, a grasp on. You know, uh, was was that tough for you? It, it really was. And I mean, and in some level, it continues to be something that I, you know, obviously have to pay very close attention to and be very diligent about more so than, than cycling or running. Those seem to come a little more naturally, but um, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a tremendous undertaking. And what I will say is that sort of my personality and the way I think about myself as an athlete in the sport, you know, I, I especially applied my incredible work ethic to this you know, side of, of learning how to swim. And that didn't just mean that I was getting in the pool and thrashing and thrashing. It was like you said, I had a coach early on that said, Hey, here's some things that you need to focus on in order to have proper technique, because we all know, and everyone says it, that swimming is technique heavy and it really is. And, mm-hmm. and you need to have that. I think you need to have that as your foundation. It's really difficult coming from other sports where, yeah, you're used to, I don't know, just being able to run however you run and, you know, and maybe push a little harder and get away with it. I mean, at the end of the day, when you distill anything down, you need to have good technique, whether it's biking, running, swimming, um, weightlifting, anything. But I think that people are maybe a little bit more trained to thinking that they don't, you know, that they're just used to thinking they can do a harder effort and go faster. And so they apply that to the pool. It really doesn't work. And, you know, you need to, you need to spend that time early on laying the groundwork. And I was fortunate to have really good coaching around me early on that kind of did that. And then I put in what I thought was, you know, uh, an incredible amount of work, uh, with that technique and, you know, very consistent. And as another point too, I was very patient and I, and I saw it as a long-term project. And as much as we all want instant gratification, I think I was also aware that in order to be, you know, a top level swimmer in triathlon, it was probably going to be a five to eight year project. And in the end, that's probably what it was before I started swimming front pack. That, that's awesome. That's such, such incredible discipline and patience. Cause you're right. I don't think, I mean, if you look at my swim stroke, you can tell that I didn't probably have a lot of patience. <laughs> I was definitely the the guy that was just trying to run through the brick wall with his swimming stroke. It was, uh, you know, I, I, I laugh sometimes, uh, you know, you know, my wife, Laura, obviously, and, and so do the listeners, you know, beautiful swimmer, one NCAA swimming, just all, all of those kind of things. And probably one of the best swimming swimmers the sport of triathlons had in the women for sure. And, but we used to train together all the time. And there was this one time we were training down in Noosa, Australia, and uh, we we're just doing a 2K side by side, you know, and just going up and down. And anyway, we got to the finish and, and this family came across with two young girls and, they came over and they said to Laura, oh, my goodness, we've been watching you for the last 10 minutes just swim. It's just absolutely beautiful swimming. Girls, what did you think? Yeah, she's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. The dad looks over to me and goes, not you so much. <laughs> <laughs> like, you bastard. You're like, is this productive? Do you really need to be telling me this? Like, yeah. let's just focus on how good her swim stroke is. Yeah, exactly. No <laughs> need to put the insults out, mate. But, but I, I mean, it, it really has been funny, the comparisons that people have between Laura and I. And I wish I'd, in my youth, you know, because I started swimming, I mean, I was always in the surf. I, I grew up, you know, obviously surf swimming. And, um, but I wish I'd spent a little bit more time 
you know, honing in my skill set of, of technique because it is such a technical sport. Um, and when, when was it then that, you know, you said you went, moved, went to Durango, decided to become a professional athlete. Was there a moment where you were like, okay, I'm going to step this up and really go all in? Was there a moment of intent uh, or was it just kind of a gradual thing over time? No, I, I would actually say there there was a moment like that. And it was, uh, I guess it was going to, if I had to rewind back, I've got to get my years right here. Um, I think it was 2009. And I basically, that was gonna, that was the year of my first Kona. And at the time I was working a part-time job at the health department in Durango, Colorado. And that was just enough. You know, I made literally like a thousand or $1,100 a month. I spent every cent of it every month, just barely you can buy. And, you know, I hmm. was, uh, on sport, sport beans, you know, sponsored by jelly belly. Uh, they had a team back in the day, NTTC sport beans. And that was kind of, you know, a few hundred bucks here and there for some bonuses for small races. And, you know, I, I made it work. I got by, um, but it wasn't pretty. And I think it was 2009 and I guess late summer in the lead up to my first Kona, I decided, you know what, this is like Kona. This is the world champs. Like I need to go all in. I'm quitting my job. I had saved up money all summer and, you know, whatever, however, six months, you know, prior to that, I'd saved what I thought was enough to get by. <laughs> and uh, Jeez, I know. Man. And I, I was like, here we go. We're going to Kona. I flew out to Kona six weeks ahead of the race. And I was like, <laughs> I'm going to go out here. I'm going to study every inch of this course. I'm going to learn, you know, what I need to learn, get acclimated. And I, so I go out there, found the cheapest possible place to stay. And, you know, went out on the course, hammered every day. And, you know, I felt like I was ready to go. I, I remember, you know, of course, this is super funny uh, looking back now, but how naive I was. But I was like, I'm probably, I think I'm probably going top 10 here, you know, like this is going to happen and mm -hmm. uh, make a splash first time at Kona. I go out there and I kid you not, 2009, I had been training for six weeks ahead of the race and there was no day that exceeded 91 to 92 degrees. And on race day, it was 94 degrees. And, you know, of course you go to completely different, different level racing, mm -hmm. but the heat was insane. And I raced really stupidly. I swam, you know, 54 at the time wasn't great. I was several minutes back in the water, chased like crazy on the bike, lost even more time. And then just absolutely imploded on the run and groveled my way into like a 930 50th place finish or something like that, or 53rd, I think. <laughs> and so, you know, th this is actually really, I love telling the story because it's like, I, re I remember very clearly walking away from the island and being like, what just happened? Like, I just, you know, I committed all this time, money, energy, focus to this thing. And what I got was just the biggest ass kicking I've ever had. And, mm. um, I, I was, I was pretty down actually that fall. I remember going back to Durango and being like, this was, maybe this is a bad idea. I should probably hang it up, you know, or whatever. And then I, I was like, I'm going to give it one more shot in the springtime. I'm going to come back in 2010. They just announced Ironman St. George. I had done a bunch of training there in college on, you know, we would take these spring break trips and come down when I was a student at the university of Montana on the club team, we'd go down there and train for spring break. So I knew the area, it's a beautiful area. And I was like, there's an Ironman there. It's a super difficult course. This should suit me. I'll give this a shot. If that doesn't go well, I'll reevaluate and, and, you know, maybe, maybe call it. And so I got through the winter, did a big block of training in the spring, got ready for that race. And I ended up finishing second place at that race. Um, 
And, you know, it was, it was, I got enough money out of that and it kind of like got me a little bit of attention. And then later that year in uh, July, I went out to Lake Placid and won my first Ironman in 2010. And that kind of was, you know, cemented me as an up and coming Ironman guy and got me a little bit of attention, a little bit of sponsorship support. And I was able to kind of build it from there. So yeah, it was a super pivotal moment um, where, you know, I'm glad that I decided to stick it out, but you know, I, and I think about it too, right now with this pandemic, I'm sure there's athletes out there that are probably, you know, on the verge of calling it just because it's such a difficult environment. But, uh, I think I've heard you say it and you're probably not the first person, but you know, um, victory goes to the person who endures just a little bit longer. So, mm. um, you know, for the people out there that are, you know, kind of considering it, you know, give yourself maybe, maybe one more chance before you do. Mm, I love that story. Is uh, just was it Matthias Hecht who won that year in two thousand nine St George? Uh, two thousand ten. No, it was actually Michael Weiss. Yeah, Michael Weiss. Oh, okay. So that's. Yeah. T- I mean, technically, you could say I'm an eight-time Ironman champion. Maybe if we, we don't need to launch into that, probably. But uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it was kind of a you know, it was a yeah, it's a little bit of a sore spot. But I, uh, in any regardless, it was a you know, it was a it was a great race, and and uh, yeah. and I was able to come back and win that finally in two thousand twelve as the final final year of the Ironman there. So, but Matthias won it, I think in 2011 and then I was right. 2012. So, yeah. I mean, it's so anybody that knows St. George, Utah too, it's, it's a, that's a tough place to, to do a race. Mate. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's absolutely stunning scenery. Uh, the backdrop for a race is just magnificent, but boy, you, you earn, you earn an Ironman title there, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of my one of my actually formative moments in Ironman racing was that race 2012 when I won because it was just horrific conditions. We had, uh, I mean, anybody that was there would, will never forget, but we had a perfectly calm morning, got in the water, and then literally 20 minutes into the swim, a desert haboob, which is basically a massive windstorm rolled in. And it was the craziest conditions I've ever raced. And I mean, dust storm, 50 mile an hour winds. I was going eight miles an hour uphill at one point I got blown off the road I've never had that happen before but I got blown off the road on my bike and uh it was just so wild and it it ended up being a nine hour and ten minute day which I mean you know (laughs) Ironman's already long enough but I mean I was putting out 300 watts for you know five hours instead of four and a half and that really adds up and so um, yeah, it was just kind of a crazy day that really took everything that I had to get it done. And it kind of rewrote what I thought I was capable of and, and kind of rewrote my limits. So it was a really important day, but, uh, yeah, truly crazy, uh, crazy environment, crazy race, tough, tough course. And mm. I'm hopeful that we get a chance to do the full distance, you know, again, someday it was supposed to happen this year, but obviously got canceled back in May. So maybe, uh, 2022. What was interesting about that story that you mentioned, you know, when you're talking 2009 and 2010, you were only 26, you know, and in terms of, in terms of Ironman, I mean, that, that's in, incredibly young, you know, it tends to be, for those that don't realize, it tends to be that most athletes spend their time kind of racing and focusing on the Olympics and the short course style of racing. Um, and maybe in your late, late 20s, early 30s, you just sort of transition to the longer, more mature sport of Ironman. <laughs> but you just went, you kind of went straight to it, didn't you? You didn't spend a lot of time in the short course world. It was always Ironman for you? It was. And and I'll be honest with you, the real reason for that was largely to do with what was a week swim when I was a, big, a mm. beginning triathlete. I mean, 
you know, we touched on it before, but I didn't come from that swim background or from that ITU background. So when I, I actually did one ITU race and it was in 2006 in Lausanne, Switzerland, it was before the world championship. It was a week before we had what was called the world university games and they may still have that. I think they do. And I was part of a USA team because I had um, done well at, at collegiate nationals uh, for, for triathlon. I'd actually won collegiate nationals in 2006 in Reno, Nevada. So I got an invite to go over to this race in Lausanne, Switzerland, and I got pumped. So, you know, it was kind of one of those things where I was like 38th place or something like that. And I was like, what was the point of this? I mean, I came out of the water two minutes down in a, you know, um, in a, whatever, a, a 1600 meter swim. And it was like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I was way back chased all day. Even my ride time didn't compare to the front guys. And that, you know, cause they're working really as a well-oiled machine up there. They know what they're doing. And, uh, and then I ran, okay, but you know, it wasn't anything special. And I just kind of was like, well, this is probably not where, where I belong. Mm. Um, and, and I, and I don't really regret it. I mean, that was just the reality of the situation. You know, I think I probably could have, I could have spent more time focusing on it. Um, but I'll be honest with you too. Part of my vision when I started this sport and I touched on the fact that it crossed my mind that maybe I would hang it up, you know, back in 2009, 10, um, because I really, I did, I came, you know, from a family of hardworking, you know, parents. And I think it was always something that I, I valued hard work from the very beginning, but I also, I cared about having it show something in terms of the financial side. And it, it was important to me to build a business, to prove that I was actually making a living. I think to be a true professional in the sport, you know, that's, that's part of the definition, right? Is that you actually make your living at it. So, um, yeah. So I think that I kind of looked at that and I thought, well, I see some of these ITU kids that are hanging around, maybe trying to get to the Olympics, you know, maybe not even in this Olympic cycle, but the next one. And it's like, I just didn't see how that was going to be something that I would be comfortable with or that would be sustainable for me. And I didn't want to wake up when I was 40 and, and really have nothing to show for it from the financial side. Um, so yeah, I think that was probably a lot of it for me. Uh, just the reality that I didn't have the swim or probably the run to be competitive at ITU at that time in 2006. And, uh, yeah, I, and I just think also innately my physiology, uh, you know, is geared towards probably the longer, more diesel type work. Just a quick mini break before we get back to the show. I just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg, sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of $79 added value. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. I think if I was to break you down and we've done many long runs together and we've done some crazy long bikes together as well is your strength, but your economy of movement, the combination, um, is what really sets you up to be one of the world's greatest Ironman athletes is that ability to hold form consistently. You know, it's like we, we said at the top of the show, you, you rent that marathon in, in, um, Ironman Florida in 2019 last year. And, you know, holding sub six minute mile pace, 342Ks, as I said, is it's not speed. Anybody that's a runner understands we're not right. talking about it being fast, but we have to understand that that is the fastest marathon ever done on the tail end of a, an Ironman. And in order to do that, you've got to be incredibly strong and incredibly efficient. And not just in terms of biomechanics and movement, but in the way you're fueling yourself, the, the whole lot of it is you've got that pass line. I know you've worked at that. I know that that's been something. But was there a time where you were like, did, in that sort of 
transitioning from being a collegiate sort of triathlete to potentially an Ironman? Did you kind of look at yourself and go, hang on, I, I do have this ability to just hold form and have this incredible economy of movement? Is that, did you see that in yourself? You know, I, I, I wouldn't say that I knew that early on necessarily, like it, not in the late 2006, seven range when I, when I first kind of made that commitment to half Ironman and Ironman, but I, I definitely noticed that my body, like I, I, I do carry a little bit more muscle. I'm not the very leanest guy, you know, I'm not the smallest guy out there, but if you look at my physique and then you compare it to, uh, Craig Alexander, uh, Chris McCormick, you know, guys that have typically done well. Um, at Ironman Hawaii, I actually am very similar to that, you know, and, um, and it's actually what typically is required for, you know, or seems to be sort of the default body type for performing well at the top level of Ironman. And so I think I kind of knew that maybe subconsciously, but in terms of the actual physiology of it, I mean, I'm not particularly gifted. I mean, once again, I I think of myself as more of a a hard worker with, you know, a, a focus on the details, but you know, I do, I do think that there is some element of that. I mean, I've been in the lab before I've spent some time at Boulder, you know, center for sports medicine. And each time I've done physiological metabolic testing there, you know, I've walked away and (laughs) they've been like, well, there's a reason why you're good at Ironman. You basically can sit on, you know, this heart rate all day long and burn fat. And, Mm. um, you know, and so, yeah, that's, that's something that I think I kind of learned as I did that physiological testing later on, but maybe in the background subconsciously, I sort of knew, okay, I am a strength endurance athlete and I'll probably do better at Ironman than maybe this extremely fast short stuff. Yeah. Well, it's been a good call to date. I tell you what, <laughs> it's pretty phenomenal. There's not many Ironman athletes that would trade their resumes uh, in a heartbeat to have yours, you know, a three-time South Africa Ironman winner. Tell us about that last year. That was an incredible race. Well, you touched on my 2018, which ended up being quite a disappointing season. And once again, I accept responsibility for choices made during that year. And then also just kind of maybe the mismanagement of my own understanding of my body that led to that injury. But um, you know, even fast, you know, go rewind even more to the beginning of 2018, I decided to do something a little different, which was to race the Cape Epic, the Absa Cape Epic with along with Sebastian Keenley. And, you know, that was uh, maybe not the smartest choice I've ever made in terms of my Ironman career. Uh, what it did do was it, it taught me a new level of suffering that I really had, had never experienced before. And I'm talking about a psychological as well as a physical suffering, because there is something about knowing that you have you know, four or five, six more days of racing. And yeah, tell feeling. us, t- take people through that Cape Epic. Yeah, so, don't know. right, yeah. For, yeah. for those not familiar, the Absa Cape Epic is a is one of the, the most grueling endurance events out there. It's an eight-day mountain bike stage race that takes place in South Africa every year. And basically, you have an opening prologue that's relatively short, kind of a time trial. And then you have another seven days a week of racing mountain bikes across gravel roads, you know, um, through vineyards, up mountains, single track, all different kinds of terrain. Um, usually it's hot and dry and oftentimes you get sick because, you know, it's this very close quarter event that, um, for whatever reason, you know, bugs spread around. And, uh, we, we did, we both got sick actually, and had sort of a, uh, GI bug during that week. So of course we were quite depleted, you know, right at the outset. And then, you pound yourself every day out there and there's just sort of this incredible nervous tension that, you know, I mean, you're always nervous when you start a race, but 
with this one, it's different because I think it's so visceral and real in your face every time you start out in a pack of people and it's a dirt road. You can't see anything. It's dusty. It's crazy. It's chaotic. And there's crashes. And, you know, you really sense that your physical health is <laughs> out, is, is in serious jeopardy every single time that you start these days. And really throughout the entire day, because you're depleted, you're, you're tired, you're, you know, your focus isn't 100%. And you're, yeah, you're just, uh, you know, and you're riding on loose terrain and it's just crazy. So, and we're not, you know, we're not mountain bike specialists. I mean, we both had ridden mountain bikes. I have a background riding mountain bikes growing up, but this was another level of, of skill, you know, that we probably didn't have. And we were trying to be competitive. I mean, in the end, we finished respectably. We were 25th out of, you know, what ended up being 50 pro teams. And technically we didn't start with the pros. We started five minutes behind them, which was difficult every day. You know, we started in the A group, Mm -hmm. so we had to chase, but we still did a respectable finish. Um, and it was, it was a crazy experience, but, uh, that was the start of my 2018 and I actually crashed pretty heavily in the queen stage. I think it was the fourth or fifth stage of the race. And I fell really, really hard on my left side, but I actually felt a jolt in my lower right back. And, um, it was like electrical shock that I felt. And it was probably, you know, a disc that had been, you know, squeezed basically. And so, From that point forward, I was planning to do the Ironman a few weeks afterwards, and I was just a mess. You know, I couldn't really run, and um, so I got my way through the Ironman basically to punch my ticket for Kona because I needed to validate to finish that race. So I did it, and you know, I got through the the event, went home, got healthy, started training again, managed to do two seventy point threes, Boulder seventy point three, and Santa Cruz, and then I pulled up with that sacral stress fracture, and so. Um, that was kind of my 2018. I basically had two 70.3s, which is the least amount of racing I've ever done except for now 2020. Um, and yeah, it was just kind of a really difficult, you know, fall where I was like, am I, I really had the questions that I think, you know, probably every top pro goes through at some point, we don't talk about it a lot, but a lot of self doubt and, uh, questioning and, you know, wondering if you're going to be able to get back and be at the high level that you were before. Um, also at that time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 35, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, just, is this going to happen? Like, am am I getting past my prime of my best years already come? And so I, I went into that fall a little bit, you know, a little bit down, but then in the springtime I got really fired up and I was like, I am on a mission right now to prove to everyone else and to myself that I'm back and that I'm not just back, but I'm better than I've ever been. And that's basically what I did in South Africa. I mean, I came out and having relinquished the title the, the year prior after winning it, winning it twice in 2016 and 17 in 2018, obviously I finished in 12 hours and, um, and Kyle Buckingham won. So I came back to really kind of get that third title and to sort of, sh- to say, Hey, I'm really back. And, um, and so I went out there and I took, I took total command and actually it was really cool. Uh, I haven't told a lot of people this, but you know, Sebi actually reached out to me right before the race that in, in I think it was early April, uh, 2019. And, sent me a message and he just said, look, man, this is what we you know. This is what we live for. This is what you want to do. You want to go out there and suffer. You know, you want to see what you can do and like really get into that, that place of, of discomfort and suffering. And, and I was like, you're right. I, I am hungry for that actually. You know, I want, I want to go there. And so I woke up that morning and that was like on my mind all day. I was like, if it hurts, I'm doing it right. You know, like, and I just pushed and pushed and pushed. And I was like, I felt like two men on the bike, Um, you know, I was just absolutely dictating the pace all day. And then on the marathon, total control, you know, I think I ran a two thirty nine was a little bit short, 
Um, so it's probably more like a 242. But I, you know, ran super solid, total command off the front of the race. And uh, yeah, racked up my third win there. And like I said, probably would have been, you know, close to the course record had we had a full swim. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, super special day. Showed myself that I was back and not only back, but probably better than I've ever been. And then I was able to, you know, kind of put the exclamation point on that in Kona and then also Florida at the end of the year. Yeah, I, I remember watching that one and, and just going, that was an all-time performance. You know, it really was a statement. And I get that. And uh, You mentioned it like the professional athletes or anybody for that matter. You know, you have these moments of self-doubt with injuries. You don't know if you're ever going to be able to come back. I remember uh, a little story of my own just to share it was with um, – in 2006, I'd had a pretty average 2005 after the Olympics in 04 and was just kind of like, what's going on? And then I got this injury and I couldn't run for four months. And I flew back to the US from Australia and went and saw my chiropractor here in Florida, Dr. Alex Keith. And he worked on me every single day. Every day I just planted myself down at the office and in between all these all these um, patients, he would see me and work on me. And, and then I set myself a goal after just starting to be able to walk and run with no injury to try and get ready for the New York triathlon in 12 weeks. And and what was interesting about that 06 New York, it was the first race of the Lifetime Fitness Series that they're going to have in the US and the, and the bonus money and everything that will go with it. Anyway, long story short, I end up winning New York um, and it had been the first big sort of win in, in a while. But during that four months, the amount of questioning I had, okay, maybe I'm done, maybe I'm done. You know, I was 34, a bit like you were, that kind of age where you're like, okay, maybe my best year is behind me. What was intriguing about that for me was that 06 New York win was the start of sort of a four-year window where I won sort of one every two races. And I don't mean to build myself up there. It was just more coming out of these moments, these times, your 2018, the Cape Epic, everything that went through those injuries to then launching into 2019 and what's ahead of you now. And I'm a big believer your best is still in front of you. I, I think, you know, 37, 38, 39, 40, I think are almost the golden years. Um, if your passion is still there, you know, you, number one thing is your passion still has to be there. But I do think physiologically that is the golden area. Uh, and I think you're you're right in that now. Um, I want to move on the show just a little bit because you've got an incredible team behind you and your relationships that you have. Just take me through you know, the people that are, have backed you from the beginning and then even more so the last few years and, and today now? Well, I would be incredibly remiss if I didn't start with my wife, even though my parents technically predate her, um, but, but, you know, <laughs> we'll in terms you. of their support. But uh, <laughs> no, I mean, Kelsey is definitely a number one. She's here every day. She listens to, you know, all my ups and downs and kind of regulates me on that front. Plus, she is just yeah, there with all the details. I mean, whether it's arranging our travel or just the day-to-day stuff with, you know, cooking healthy meals and and now obviously being an incredible mother to our to our baby daughter and mm. to and being pregnant with our second child on the way. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's oh. crazy here. We we're trying to make the most of 2020. So um Oh, yeah, man. But, uh, congratulations. Yeah. That's big news everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're about to find out what it's like to be to be real parents now with oh. number two. But uh, she's a real rock star, man. And I mean, I think, you know, she's definitely, yeah, yeah the, the cornerstone of this operation. And uh, and yeah, I mean, she believes in me as much or more than anybody else out there, which I think is, is massively critical. But uh, mm. for sure, my parents, too. I mean, they've always been supportive. I remember, you know, that they were quite shocked when 
I first had the opportunity, um, I had saved a bit of money and I decided to buy at the time it was like a $3,500 bike. And this was 2006 in college. And, um, you know, they were just kind of shocked. I think that I had spent that much money and it was a, it was actually a Cervelo, a company that I'm now sponsored by, but it was a Cervelo P3C. If you remember those time trial bikes, they were some of the original, beautiful, uh, beautiful, incredibly, you know, they were game changers. Really. They were some of the fastest bikes at the time, still a great bike, but I bought that with my own money. My parents kind of did like a, what, you know? And I mean, that was as far as they ever went in questioning me because the truth is a bit, you know, we're supportive really all along and have been, you know, massively supportive. So I feel very fortunate that way that, that, uh, my dream to pursue this sort of niche sport and, uh, make it a career wasn't just something that they completely dismissed right away. Um, cause I have heard stories of that from other people and I'm sure it would make it really difficult to mm. feel comfortable and confident pursuing it if you didn't have that support from immediate family. But, uh, to, to extend the circle out a little bit further, um, you know, definitely my coach, Ryan Bolton, who is a big part of my team now. I mean, he, writes my program. Also, you know, we're friends. I mean, it's not just as simple as him giving me workouts. It's also that, you know, we enjoy uh, spending time together and, you know, whether that's going up to his place in Crested Butte and doing some training or Santa Fe, um, cause he still actually does ride and swim a bit. And so, and he's actually annoyingly fit most of the time. Um, you know, where I'm like, how am I not dropping this guy right now? But, uh, yeah, he's awesome. And, uh, I have total confidence, you know, he's a guy that, that race in the Sydney Olympics as an ITU athlete, but then also went as far as, you know, racing and winning Ironman at Lake Placid. And so he's kind of run the full gamut and has that knowledge, you know, of what it's like to be the athlete, but then also the the background and the studies as well, you know, going to school for, um, you know, sports science and, and specifically metabolic stuff. So he's super smart and super solid guy. And, uh, and then, yeah, I mean, as far as physio goes, I mean, uh, we both know Marcos extremely well. And, uh, you know, he's, he's definitely the best in the biz. He's, uh, an incredible massage therapist based out of Boulder, Colorado, and just an all around good human being that brings such incredible energy. You know, every time that you're in there to see him really knows athletes, you know, he worked, he's worked on you. He's worked on Chrissy. He's worked on uh, TO all the best athletes have gone to him. And, you know, in, in terms of understanding a triathlete's body and knowing how to work on it, you know, I, I haven't met a better massage therapist. So, um, yeah. And then I think, you know, you just kind of go beyond that. You've got your, you know, your sponsors who also in a lot of cases for me, uh, you know, are friends now. I mean, I've been with these companies for, you know, 10 years and, uh, you know, I have relationships that go beyond just the business side, which is pretty cool. But yeah, it really does take, you know, an incredible team. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely not be where I am today without the support of all these people. Mate, I, I loved all of that. But first off, huge congrats uh, to you guys <laughs> having a second one on the way. I am tremendously excited for you. Um, and yes, I think you're right. I think having the second kid, you're going to understand truly what being a parent is <laughs> when you're trying to grab one and the other one. It's like, I don't know. That's how our life has been anyway. This 2020 for Laura and I is just like, ah, hang on. <laughs> I mean, uh, the thing is, you mentioned having control earlier, right? Or controlling the things that you can control. Yeah. And I I am a firm believer in that. I actually do think that that's a great principle in theory. However, I also think that, uh, you know, sometimes recognizing that control is an illusion is important. 
And uh, I have a feeling that we're going to be faced with that, that reality that control is an illusion um, when that second baby comes. So I, I, I think I put it when, when I had Laura on the show, which we had to get up at 3am for, by the way, to record. Oh, wow. it, so it's like I came into the studio and, and she was home because both kids were asleep. But uh-huh. it, it's kind of like I said, living, living as a professional athlete, your life was kind of a, a, a zero where you were completely relaxed or a 10 when you're all in. <laughs> Being a parent of two, you kind of... You're never completely relaxed. You're either three or four and you never get to go all in it. You're just always at like a six or seven. You just live in this gray zone and it's 24-7. You're like, ah, my brother says to hang in there until they're four. So I've got a couple more years and we're basically a year in front of you. So if you ever want to reach out just to have somebody go, hey, I need somebody just to vent. I'm here. Yeah. Just tell me it's going to be okay, Greg. Just tell me. It's, it's okay, okay, mate. It's okay. Just get through the. We call it a push phase. Laura and I still use all the athletic terms. We yeah, call yeah. this this early stage of of the kids is is the push phase. Just just push your blinders on and just hang in there and and no big decisions. No big decisions when when you're that tired. Just hang in there. But you you mentioned Kelsey. She is one of the most incredible women I think I've ever met. You're a very lucky man. Well deserved, by the way. But you're still lucky. Um, just I, she is helping manage your business on the back end. She's an incredible mom. Um, so big shout out to Kelsey, Kelsey there. And you, you mentioned Ryan Bolton. I raced Ryan tons of times in the late nineties. Um, not only a great athlete, but just a, a really good human being. So you, you've, you've surrounded yourself with incredible people, obviously your parents, but, um, you know, just wonderful people. Marcus Mejias has been, mentioned on this show too many times i think when i had chrissy wellington on and tio and rini we've all spoken about marcus and i know you're the man that always flies him to kona um <laughs> and i think that's great that you're you're willing to take your whole team with you um for me that's that next step of professionalism you know to be able to take your team with you when it's most important surround yourself with the best it's uh it's absolutely fantastic and and then finally your sponsors like you said i think you've been with is it zoot have you been with them for I feel like yeah, you've been basically in- forever. It seems like, I mean, I think it's been, yeah, 10, 10 or 11 years now. Oh, that's and, uh, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, it really is. And I, I guess one final piece that I, I didn't think to mention there is just also the training partners and community of athletes mm. that way too. Right. I mean, the mm. people that, um, some are, are still part of my team that way that I still train with. And then obviously some people have retired like yourself or like Richie Cunningham or like mm. uh, Chris Lee, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. And I think, to me, that is a big piece of it, right? I mean, that the social aspect, the community, um, that connectedness that we all kind of know um, from putting the time and energy into the sport and being passionate about it, um, it really, to me, it makes a big difference. I'm not one of those um, those trainers, I guess, the athletes that just that do it all by themselves. You know, I mean, I, I definitely have my moments where I, you know, there's sessions that I do alone and, and probably always will, but uh, I also enjoy getting out there and pushing myself with other people and, and sort of sharing that suffering, I guess. Yeah, it is a shared suffering. And you even mentioned guys like Sebastian Kinlay, and it's kind of how, how he sent you that note before South African Ironman. I, you know, there's the personalities in the sport, uh, just incredibly supportive of each other. So it's even your peers, even the guys that are trying to beat you, take you down, that kind of mentality. <laughs> it's like there's this unbelievable mateship that you get in the sport, specifically in Ironman, I think because you all know you're going to hell and back 
you know, and you basically are on your own. But there is this tremendous mateship with you guys, you know, especially even at the the very top of the world. You know, Sebastian, last year you were trying to chase him down. He finished third and you were fourth maybe a minute behind. Yeah, 40, 42 seconds actually. 42 so, seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's counting? <laughs> just, I just happen to know that, yeah. No, I uh, – it's you're absolutely right, man, and it, it's so it, it is so cool that way. I mean, I think it's one of the things that I that keeps me you know passionate about the sport is that we can be friends and we can be you know uh, incredibly respectful of each other, um, and then we battle. You know, we definitely want to beat each other on the day. But I think, yeah, we all know how much work goes into this, and there's that shared experience, which is a cornerstone of friendship. You know, I mean that you're out there suffering like that and and also just the lead up the 99 percent that goes into the training you know we all know what that is so it is it's a special sport that way and, and one of the things that it keeps bringing me back for sure yeah i, I want to touch on you earlier in the show you mentioned you know your mental side and mental approach are, are you doing anything in a in kind of a a formal approach to you know your mindset training or um visualizing word affirmations do you work on that side specifically yeah absolutely i mean i think the main thing that i do is mindfulness med- meditation and um that's something that i've incorporated over the last probably f- three or four years and um something that kind of i would say kelsey maybe got me more into uh, you know she had done some retreats and and you know done some sort of i guess meditation on her own and it's just something that I started to read a little bit more about and realized that, you know, it's probably something, no matter if you're an athlete or just any human being on planet earth, giving yourself that time and space to, to meditate and to reflect. And then also just to calm and clear your mind, Mm. um, on a daily basis can be extremely beneficial. And so I would say that's definitely something that I do. And then, I mean, like what I think any good athlete, any great athlete should be doing, I'm always looking and exploring and uh, listening, you know, and asking questions. And, um, and we have a lot of different tools, you know, that we use. I mean, there's something, there's a company called Huso, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. And they actually make sort of a vibrating crystal band that goes on your, on your ankles and then on your wrists as well. And uh, it goes through what they, it's, the reason it's called Huso is because it's human sound and it's basically chanting and these noises that are human based vo- like voice, you know, or vocal noises. And, um, and it's incredibly relaxing. You know, you just throw these things on and, and sit in a chair and kind of listen to the sound with the headphones on. And, um, and even that, I mean, it's its own form of meditation, but yeah. And then as far as the positive affirmations, absolutely visualization. I mean, I do all of those things and I think, the, the positive affirmations, the, the way that I, I guess, approach that is, is more through reading. Um, you know, I actually just kind of try to find books that I think are, you know, applicable to all areas of life, but in particular sport. And then, you know, read these sort of quotes and sayings and things that, 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 uh, that get me to hone in on, I guess, on that mental side. And, and really at the core of all of it to me is self-belief, right? I mean, I, that, that is really what it comes down to. And it's difficult. It's one of the most difficult things to believe in yourself, but it's also like the number one way to have success, especially in, you know, Ironman racing, I think is to believe um, that you have the ability, you know, and that to really trust yourself, I guess. 
Mm, you're right about that. I, I think I've mentioned on this show that I think confidence was one of the things that I really struggled with probably for the first 10 years of my career. I think I left a lot of potential wins, you know, where where I should have done a lot better than I should have. And basically, because I just didn't believe in myself. But those, I think for me, it took a while. It took a little bit of the pats on the back, you know, those, <laughs> you know, that was a good result. Actually, I think I could do one better. Okay, okay, okay. I can finally get it. And, and then you kind of start taking ownership of going, actually, I am, I can be the best in the world at this. It's it's kind of hard to have self belief if you haven't had those pats on the back. I think it can't, comes gradually, and maybe that's why I was a slow learner. It took me a while to get. Oh, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I mean, to me, that is the process, right? It's this yeah. this constant process of increasing that self belief, and it doesn't mm. just happen overnight or in one result or whatever it is. It's this sort of constant process, and then. I, like you said, I think the ownership element is when you take it on and realize that you actually have a big role in that, that maybe it's not everyone else patting you know <laughs> you on the back, but it's actually you patting yourself on the back and saying, hey, like you are you know capable of doing this and then believing it yourself when you say it and and owning it and realize you know and that and that's scary too, because I think when you do that, um, you know you launch into a different different realm. and the flip side of that is that, sometimes the failure stings a little bit more too, you know, and you, um, I guess you are a little bit harder potentially on yourself when you don't have the result that you really believed and and still probably believe that you're capable of having. But like we all know, failure is also a massive component of growth and, you know, future success. So, um, again, that's just about mindset and the way you, you know, what your attitude is towards, uh, those failures. Mate, that was all brilliantly said. I love all of that. I mean, I, I think that that taking ownership of your self belief is is just huge. And I think you're right. I think by doing that, you often do feel like you're putting yourself out there for a greater failure. But that's where the le- the learning is. So I think I think it's uh, it's worth it's a win win. So you might as well do it, right? I mean, it's it's like why not? Um, yeah, I mean, and that's really that. I will say just because that that triggers something in me too, a, a reminder of just sort of a, a mindset shift that I've had over the last couple of years that. I think when you're younger, sometimes it just, there's a lot of programming that happens throughout your life when you're younger. And a lot of it has to do with sort of these knee jerk reactions to what we think are negative experience or bad, you know, quote unquote. And what you come to discover as, as you grow as a human and an athlete is that the transformative experiences, the things that actually are the knee jerk, no, I don't want to do that, are the things that you really start to seek out because you know, like you said, that no matter what, whether you feel the pain and, and quote unquote fail, or whether you really break through and have a great performance because you push that envelope, either way, there's the growth there. And that ultimately mm. is what you're after, you know, the improvement that comes from pushing that boundary. And so my idea, you know, is to reframe like, okay, and that's where mindfulness comes in too. What am I feeling right now? Why am I feeling that way? Do I really believe that, you know? Mm-hmm. Or is this something that I should be embracing maybe? And, you know, what, if I do embrace it, what could be the positives that come out of it? And it's pretty cool when you do that. I mean, you know, it's because I, I think you miss out on a lot of stuff when you, when you take that initial impulse um, mm. that, you know, that you feel uh, maybe that negative impulse. How, how quickly can you get to that sort of phase? I, I always used to say to Laura, you know, I need my time to be disappointed because it meant something to me. I need this. 
I can't just put on a happy face and rebound and go, okay, what's next? I, I always felt like I needed. And for me, it was always like that Sunday night after a race or whatever. It's like, just give me a couple of hours. I would always cross a line happy because I believe the response that you want from other people, they're going to just be a reflective image of your personality. So if you cross the line disappointed, you're going to get them going, oh, woe was you. And I, I So I yeah. always learned no matter what the performance, cross the line happy and then I'd get people happy and it'll be good. But then I'll be like, okay, get back to my hotel room and let me just have a couple of hours write things down would always help me process it write it down immediately not the next day because the next day you're like why didn't i do that why didn't i and it's no you got to write it down while it's really fresh you remember how much pain you were in and that always was a help helpful but for you that getting to that point of okay this was a learning experience rather than just simply looking at it and being disappointed is that does is that a switch or how do you get to that point well, like a lot of things in life, I feel like you have to relearn lessons all the time, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing how you can, you know, <laughs> you can feel like you've really got something down and then a couple of years pass and you're like, oh yeah, I thought I knew that. I guess I'm relearning <laughs> it again. Um, so I don't want to say, yeah, at, in absolute terms that like, this is something that I have nailed down. I don't, but I, I do think that again, with the mindfulness training that you are more cognizant and you maybe get there a little bit sooner and you realize that, you know, that this is not a productive thing and maybe there's something else I could be doing or a way that I could be approaching this, an attitude that I could be having that would be more productive and beneficial for my development and my uh, future success. And so I think everyone is totally different and I'm, mm -hmm. I, by no means do I think there's like a right amount of time or whatever it is, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think just having that ability to, Again, be mindful, check in with yourself and say, you know, what is it that I need? And if you need that time and you need it to be two hours or a couple of days or whatever it is to lament your poor performance, then yeah, if that turns out to be the recipe for you being better the next time around, then great, you know? Um, but for me, I found that like you, the older you get and the more performances you have and the, and some of the better performances you have, you realize once again, like I did in 2018 after coming off that injury and then 2019 performing well, that I just have that much more confidence now to back myself and say, okay, if I had a bad race or something didn't go well for a few months in my training or whatever, I'm not going to freak out about it because okay. I believe that I can come back from this. If I do what I know to be the fundamentals here, if I get back on track with a few of these, then I'm going to be fine. And I'll, I'll have confidence in that. So yeah, it's just a maturity thing. Um, and it's probably different, you know, for different ages, different people, but, uh, yeah, everyone has their process. I'm still working on mine, like you said, man. I mean, I'm a work in progress. Absolutely. We're still evolving, mate. But the one thing you and I have is very strong women behind us. So they're not going to let us wallow for too long. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely true. I mean, Kelsey definitely keeps me in check where it's like, you know, she does the thing where I, you often hear, and I mean, this is not to be stereotypical, but I think you, you often hear that females will say like, I don't want you to like solve my problem. I just want you to listen to me. Well, I found myself sort of saying that to Kelsey the other day where I was like, I don't want you to solve my problem. And she's like, well, I get that. And she's like, and you've been, you know, complaining about this for too long. So now I need to just step in and like offer my opinion about how we maybe solve this because, um, yeah, oh I've heard, God. I've heard, too, I've heard too much of it basically. So I was like, yeah, you're probably right. I need to stop complaining about this um, you and i we, we're yeah. living a mirrored life mate <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty good one though i will say it's uh it, you know. absolutely but they'll put us in our place i get it and, and then sometimes you're like yeah i gotta i gotta man up a little bit here what the hell yeah. i know i know it's quite a slap in the face <laughs> yep. i love it what about um sleep and recovery 
tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days. Are you prioritizing sleep and what does that look like for you? Well, certainly the dynamic has changed a little bit with, uh, you know, a young baby. Um, she's well, not super young anymore. She's now 13 going on 14 months, but, um, yeah, I mean, we, we've been fortunate in that sense, I guess. I mean, she's been a good sleeper overall. And when we were getting ready for Kona last year, when she was freshly born a month out from the race, I actually slept in a, a separate area of the house in a guest quarters that we have. Mm. And, you know, I was able to kind of distance myself that way. So I could continue getting sleep because, um, I really am a big believer in, you know, sleep, um, almost as much as anything else as being probably <laughs> the, the a number one, most critical recovery tool, um, that we have. And I tend to not try to say anything too concrete about what exactly you need, but you need restful sleep, whatever that means for you, you need to get, you know, adequate restful sleep every night. And, for me, that ends up being about seven to eight hours, actually. I mean, I know they often talk about the eight hour being a magic number, but I, mine's a little bit less than that, I find. Um, I can be I can be in a heavy training load, you know, go to bed at 8 to 9 p.m. and then be up early in the morning, 4.30 or 5, and be, be pretty good to go, you know, throughout that entire two, you know, month, eight to 10 week period of hard training. So, yeah, um, but no, I do think that that's massive. And I've taken, you know, I've tried to take in the information that's current and, and then also apply what I can. The only thing I haven't tried, amazingly, I thought about doing it is a weighted blanket, but I have mm. done virtually everything else. I mean, I do take uh, a little bit of melatonin, which um, is not only potentially you know beneficial for sleep. I, I take three milligrams. It's about the smallest amount you can take, but um, I it also apparently is quite a strong antioxidant. Um, so that can be, be good at certain times and in, in certain training cycles. But uh, yeah, I've, I have a you know, a chili pad that I use depending on the season, the weather, it's a, it's a cooling device that goes on the, the surface of your bed and pumps basically cold water or warm water if you need that. Um, yeah. And then we try to keep the room, you know, nice and cool, plenty dark. I'm definitely sensitive to light. Um, I actually sleep with earplugs and I find that that works for me on a few levels. I'm definitely sensitive to sound, but then also when I travel somewhere into a new environment, it's almost like a trigger for my mind where I put the earplugs in, I'm out, you know? Um, so that works well that way, but, uh, yeah, big believer in, in, uh, sleep and, uh, yeah, I mean, we have all the recovery tools, but probably the most natural one of all, the one that, that works the best is just getting really good rest every night. I love all that. I have the chili pad as well. I had to buy one of those this year. I was oh, like, nice. you know, I wasn't sleeping well. I was waking up at that one or two o'clock really hot every night and I was like yeah so we started experimenting with the the chili pad and, and like you I want to try that weighted blanket I haven't actually got around to it um to yet I I bet do you take I take a magnesium glycinate before bed do you take anything like that I really get a heavy sleep with that I really actually do bed. take magnesium and I yeah I found that uh I, I do think that it helps relax the muscles a little bit and um yeah I've, I've basically those are the two things that I take magnesium and melatonin at night yeah. Um, and then for supplementation in the day, uh, it's pretty basic. I take a multivitamin, a fish oil. And then because I discovered that I was a little bit low on vitamin D, I take a vitamin D supplement and a B12. Um, so those are the four that I take during the day, magnesium yeah. and melatonin at night. And uh, the other thing actually um, that, that does play into this uh, is, is CBD, which is something that mm. in the last couple of months, well, probably five months that I've been experimenting with as sort of a, a sleep aid as well. And, you know, I think it's one of those things that 
that uh, you have to experiment with for a little while to find what really works as a dosage for yourself. Um, you know, I tend to metabolize basically anything that goes into my body pretty rapidly, <laughs> which is probably true for most athletes out there, especially Ironman athletes that are doing a lot of training. But um, early on when I first tried CBD like a year and a half ago, I didn't really notice anything from it. And then I kind of realized that I probably just wasn't taking enough and that the the quality of the product that I was using before probably wasn't um, up to snuff and wasn't a full spectrum product. So yeah, that's another one too that, uh, you know, I encourage people to to check out if they haven't already. Um, which product do you use? Which CBD do you use? I actually have a, a, a yet unannounced deal that's coming through. Um, oh. But yeah, it's a it's a company called Champions and Legends. So that'll, that'll be a partnership with me moving forward. They're a relatively new company in the space. They're, they're but, full uh, spectrum, you said? Yes, they do. Yep. Okay, yep. perfect. Because it it's interesting you mentioned those two, melatonin and CBD, because Dr. Ara Sapaya, who was on just two weeks ago, one of the most brilliant men, if you, if you get a chance to listen to an episode, just absolutely blew me away. Um, one of the greatest uh, functional sports medicine doctors in the world. And his journey to get to that point is just remarkable. And he works with all the professional golf and tennis players. And, and he said, you know, that's what he's using is exactly what you're describing, um, the melatonin. Sometimes the melatonin on its own, sometimes the CBD on its own, sometimes a combination. Um, and you also mentioned the magnesium. I just want to be clear because there's so many different magnesiums out there. The magnesium glycinate is the one you want for sleep right. at night. Yep. We take a magnesium three and eight um, during the day after my episode with Dr. Mansur Mohammed, who's the geneticist, one of the world's latest DNA geneticists, just brilliant man, and told me that basically I need to get out in the sun or supplement with vitamin D as well, um, that I'm never, no matter what happens, it's my body's not going to be very good at um, receiving the, the sunlight and transporting it and everything else. So um, those guys were really helpful in me understanding what I needed. Um, and I think getting some kind of a ancestral type test could be for people listening, not so much you, um, could be very interesting to, to get an idea of what you need for supplementation and nutrition. Um, in, in Dr. R. S. Sapaya's episode, he was sort of saying, look, I look at each client and I kind of figure out their ancestors. You know, he said, look, I'm from Malaysia and India. We eat a lot more carbohydrates along the equator there. He said, if I was with somebody that was maybe from the Scandinavian countries, they'd probably got a higher chance that they'll need more fats in their diets, you know? And it was just an interesting way of looking at nutrition and supplementation in terms of, uh, genetics and ancestral health but um anyway mate that was all of what you just mentioned there in terms of sleep is just fantastic um keeping the your room nice and dark and cool and and all of those things in the earplugs and like you when our both our kids came along for the first six weeks i always went to another room and slept so that might be a <laughs> yeah. very poor week dad I, I wasn't even racing iron man mate i just wanted to get some sleep but the theory was that one of us had to be feeling reasonable during the daytime <laughs> well that was my that was the thing i sold anyway <laughs> well i mean the truth of the matter too is that and i know this gets said often and and maybe it's a bit of a cop-out too but uh i do think that especially in those early you know months that the the child really does want the mother and oftentimes especially very, very early on, it is about the, the breastfeeding, you know, and, um, and that's not something that I'm capable of doing. So yeah, that was kind of my, my rationale as well. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I don't know about you, but it's so transparently clear when I don't sleep, I, I feel like I lose 20% off my performance the next day. If I oh, get a rough night of sleep, it's just sure. crazy. So, um, yeah. And I mean, it's, uh, 
it's part of the game. I, I do think that, you know, you were talking earlier about, <laughs> you know, the way you guys view raising your children now. And, I, and I've heard that from a lot of people. And what, what Kelsey actually says is like, this is an investment, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, we're investing in, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful time. It's amazing watching them grow and change and, um, and just teaching them so much right now. But I do think like, you know, the most fun years probably are still to come. And it, it is a bit of an investment that way where, yeah, for sure. It's a curveball to your, you know, established life right now and a big, big change, but, um, but well worth it. And, uh, again, one of those, you know, growth experiences that I think will be invaluable, um, you know, for, for Kelsey and I, and yeah, it's just, uh, it's a, it's a definitely a crazy time, but you know, we, we've loved every minute of it or at least most minutes of it so far. So, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Most minutes have been wonderful. I know we all get pushed to the edge. I think that's the whole point of it. You, you love them dearly. And then you sometimes you're just like, I just want to have a rest. I just want life to be about me for a moment. <laughs> it's like, it's like I was probably one of the most self-consumed athletes in the world. It was all about me. I, you know, I retired at 44 as I milked it as long as I could. I loved the sport. And then suddenly it was like, Oh, I've got to be enslaved to these two little human yeah. beings now. It's like, what? <laughs> so it's been a transition. That's for sure. But absolutely wonderful. I want one final piece. I just want to chat to you about, and that is, you know, being that we get back to racing in 2021 a proper and Ironman Kona's back and um and we did chat about this on a on a show we did with the PTO a while back and and I don't want to harp on it but you know you really are there um you know you you're good mates with Sebastian Kinley Tim, Timothy O'Donnell who got second and third last year Jan Fredino slightly in front of them you know what what do you think it is that that you need to do to be the one that that crosses that line first at the World Championships that's a really great question. And I think the first thing that comes to mind, and, and I think I may have kind of said this before, and it's a bit of a boring answer, but it, it, I really think it's an important kind of cornerstone, you know, the groundwork to, to lay before I go into maybe more detail. And that is that I don't need to change a whole lot, actually. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that you just said yourself, I mean, I'm, I'm right there and I, I will never... Uh, I will never say that what Jan did last year is something that could never happen again, um, you know, from him, but I, it's not something that I'm going to expect him to do every year by his own account. It was, you know, his best performance mm. of his career potentially. And so, yeah, I mean, and he beat us pretty handily actually, but, uh, but if you look at Tim in second, Sebastian 40 seconds up the road from me in third and then me right there as well. I mean, and you said it earlier in the podcast as well, I happened to see a stat the other day that my time ranks as the eighth fastest time ever in Kona. Three of the times that are in front of me are obviously from 2018 when there wasn't any wind or significant heat. Um, it was an exceptionally fast year. So, you know, I look at that and think, okay, I'm right there. I'm knocking on the door of the fastest times that have ever been done on the island, you know, in the history of, of Ironman racing there. So it's not that I need to try to get 5%. I just need to continue to improve myself as an athlete across the board and then I need to execute. And on top of that, I believe, you know, you probably need to have a little bit of a luck, a bit of luck actually. And, and actually to, to take, you know, to be willing to take the risk. And, and that's something that I probably haven't maybe fully admitted anywhere else, but I think there was probably a little bit of hesitation on my part last year when I'm, when I'm completely transparent with everyone out there that I think I didn't have the willingness maybe to, after having missed Kona in 2018 altogether, you know, not even being able to toe the line with injury, I'm not sure that I had the absolute all in, you know, risk 
everything attitude that that that's sort of required out there actually mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. and and now i can honestly say that you know i'm in a position where mentally physically financially i feel comfortable taking that risk you know and i think it's necessary i think it's a it's a piece of the equation where you're willing to risk it all you know to have the ultimate reward and not to be worried about satisfying sponsors or you know uh, proving to yourself that you're right up there, you know, as one of the best, I want to be the best. And so Mm. that's going to take, yeah, that's going to take me being willing to push maybe beyond what I've ever done in my entire life in training or in racing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I do feel like I'm willing to do that. And I guess the other, you know, the other stuff is to, is the consistent process of chipping away. There's no question that I need to continue to improve myself as a swimmer and minimize the gap to the best swimmers in the world uh, because that's a big piece of the game now, you know, and obviously last year uh, that ended up being a critical, you know, deciding moment in the race, obviously first and second place decided out of that front swim group. So being as close as possible to that group, if not in it is definitely important. Um, One thing that I do believe after last year's race is that I finally put together what historically is a critical component of winning that race, which is to run a fast marathon. And, you know, I always felt like I was capable of doing it, but I never really displayed it. I think my previous best time was around 250 out there. And then this past year I ran 243 low. And to me, that's actually what made me believe now more than ever that I can win that race. And, you know, I think I look at some of the other guys that, you know, even the guys that finished in front of me and they're still sort of in that same 249, 250 range, which historically isn't going to be fast enough to win the race. I mean, it has definitely been fast enough a few times, but you know, if you were a betting man, you would say you need to run a little bit faster than that. And now I know I have that in my back pocket. Mm. I think when I, when I, you know, coming to the end of this conversation with you, it's the one thing's become very clear is your maturity over time, your, your team that you've built around you, um, obviously with Kelsey and, and Ryan Bolton has been the two f- key figureheads there, but um, y- your work ethic that you, you know, I think sometimes we, I think we got to look at work ethic as one of the greatest talents. You know, I think sometimes we say there's this physiological talent and all these kinds of other things, but I think to, to have the ability to have that kind of a work ethic, to outwork people, is is extraordinary and you've got that um you have a great understanding of your body and recovery and what it needs and you know through all and this this is all because of all the lessons you've had over the last you know 15 years in in Ironman but even going prior to that you know you 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 get to this point in your late 30s that you know yourself you know so so well that I really don't see uh that it's impossible for you to not secure that world title um in the very close future here, whether it's 2021, 22, whatever, you know, I, I think you've got a couple of years here and you're willing to be daring. And that is the final ingredient, I think, of a, <laughs> of a great champion. Yeah, that, that, no, there's that freedom, right? There's that right, freedom yeah. of a, I'm allowed to be daring now. I've paid my dues. I've paid my dues. I've been consistent. I've been there enough. And now I can just light it up and see what can happen from it. And so I think that's just extraordinary. And, mate, it's just been incredible chat it really has you know you, you can, we can be mates on a bike for a couple of hours and, and all sorts of things but it's it's very rare that we just get to sit down and, and and well for me listen 
to the mind of a great champion. So I really appreciate you coming on, mate. So next up is you've got a race at the end of the year here where you'll do your very best at Challenge Daytona. Hopefully it happens. Um, uh, where can people follow you and, uh, you know, where are you posting these days? Yeah, I would say that, you know, that the thing that I'm most um, consistent with when it comes to social media probably is on Instagram and that's just B Hoffman racing um, mm -hmm. at B Hoffman racing. And then that's also my Twitter handle. And then of course I have a, a Facebook fan page that's Ben Hoffman racing. So feel free to check that out. And uh, perfect. yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the main stuff that I do and, you know, try to give you a little glimpse into my life here and there. Um, I'm not sure I'm an expert on the social media stuff, but I do, yeah, do enjoy engaging with people on there. And I would say quickly too, I wanted to go right back to what you just kind of said as, as a final piece of that whole, you know, discussion of Kona, I think, and, you know, we've been talking about it through this podcast and I think your podcast in general does a good job of exploring this, but one thing that people just don't also talk enough about, I mean, you want to see, oh yeah, you've got to improve your swim. You've got to improve your bike. You got to get faster at running. You've got to do, you know, metabolically, you've got to be able to do this and this at the end of the day. And I mean, I think you can speak to this when it comes to racing and top level performance, there's so much of it that is mindset. And, it, and we, we touched a lot on it. I mean, self-belief, et cetera, but it's also just the vibe, right? Like the passion, the hunger, the desire to suffer, and then also just having things in your life be aligned, right? I mean, your relationship mm -hmm. with your significant other, um, that passion that comes from, for me last year, a lot of it was knowing that I was going to be a new father, you know, it just got me so excited. And I thought about this new dimension of my life that was happening. And, you know, I, I have a little bit of a background in, in uh, you know, just reading and studying Zen Buddhism. And, you know, I think to do like a very basic summary of what that, what Zen Buddhism is for people out there, you know, I always think of it as sort of a general appreciation for life. And so I think when you get into that sort of Zen state where you're just looking around and seeing things positively and you're being like, you know, you're just vibing on everything. Mm. Um, you're in that state of mind where you see opportunity instead of negatives. And, um, and it's going to take that too, for me to have that performance out there, to be in that state of mind. All of my best performances in Kona have been when I've flown to the island, gotten off the plane and been like, I am genuinely happy and excited to be here and see what I can do. And, uh, you know, it's crazy because after all these years, you can't necessarily control that, but I think being aware of it is the first step in order, you know, to make it happen. Mm. And, uh, yeah. And I think I'm getting better at creating that environment and that mindset. So, um, that's kind of the final piece that I would say on that, you know, in terms of what it takes to win. That was really well said, mate. I get goosebumps when I hear people talk like that because I think it is all about that finding that that intensity, that zone in which you can be in where, where you're just happy. You're just happy to be a part of it. You're just enjoying the journey, you know. Yep. And, and and it's like my wife, Laura, always said, it's, I don't get nervous. I just get excited. And it's yep. almost like that. I never got, because I was always nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but she's like, I'm like, are you nervous? No, I'm excited. I'm like, <laughs> Well, it's actually the same thing, but she's just using a, a word that is so much more impactful in terms of energy, isn't it? I mean, you say you're yeah. excited rather than I'm nervous. You know, it's like there's a negative and a positive right there. And she was always very, very good at that. Well, mate, this has been absolutely a thrill. And I really, really appreciate you coming on. And super congrats again on number two. Um, coming soon. I, I, I'm really excited for you guys. And uh, please give Kelsey a big hug for me. That's just really really great i mean i'm excited for all your racing and everything else as well mate but i'm just you know obviously that's that's a big one um 
So thanks for coming on, brother. That was awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been really good. And uh, I'm sure I'll be texting you slash calling you soon with all, all kinds of questions about what to do with number two. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Feel free to, mate. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to get the show notes, timestamps, coupon codes, and, and links to Ben, that'll be at uh, bennettendurance.com forward slash media. Stay on the line, mate. This was absolutely fantastic. Cheers. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.